every year, and uh, we'd, we'd like to have your participation. And even if you can't buy a ticket, maybe you could go together with four or five people and buy one. Or the other option is to come to Children's Lantern Day at Cabin Fever, which is just a day we have a fundraiser at Cabin Fever, all of the drinks you buy. So you can just come in and buy a cup of coffee, and that money will go right to, to uh, Children's Lantern. So, you know, you can participate that way, and you only have to spend a couple bucks. So if you would, just uh, pray for us. Keep us in your prayers. If you want to buy a ticket, we'll be out there. Uh, if you want to come to the to Children's Lantern Day, we would appreciate that you do that. Let's do this. Take your gift in your hand and hold it up to the Lord. And if you don't have a gift, just hold a hand up. He don't care. He's here to help you and connect with you. And let's sing this song to the Lord. I exalt thee, I exalt thee, I exalt thee, O Lord, I exalt I exalt thee, I exalt thee, O Lord. Lord, we do exalt you with our giving. We just believe that we reap what we sow, and we want to put into action the words that you spoke to us. If we give, it will be given to us. We appreciate you so much. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in James today. You can open to the book of James, which is toward the end of the New Testament. We're in a series called Year After Year, and we've been talking about this. And we started off uh, five weeks ago addressing time and how the equation is this, consistent effort over time multiplied by God, because that's what the Word says. The Word says that God will take things that you invest some even a hundredfold and multiply it. Multiplied it by God equals great success. And so how are we investing our time? And one of the great gifts that we have is we have the ability to think and rethink, to prioritize and reprioritize, and we can make adjustments. In fact, the Bible tells us that a wise man sees danger and turns. But a fool continues on his path and faces destruction. And so we have the ability to turn and make changes. And so the very first week we talked about how we're spending our time. That's what these golf balls are up here. There's 168 golf balls because there's 168 hours in a week. And we talked about how the average American spends their time. And we, we kind of divvied it up amongst these little jugs here. And they all have different titles on them. And if you can't see them, there's, there's entertainment and exercise and spiritual growth and sleeping and work and those types of things. But we do that. Now, here's the thing, guys. We're coming to the end. And this is the last day of this series. Five weeks has gone by from the start of this series till now. Five weeks. And you guys know, it's just like, it's just like a blink of an eye, isn't it? How time just disappears uh, in front of us. The school year has started uh, in that time, and it feels like it just ended just a couple weeks ago, but it hasn't. We've had our whole summer. Of course, we know the weather shifted on us a little bit. It was 92 last week, and now it's freezing or feels like it because it was 92 last week. So uh, I had a sweatshirt on yesterday, and I told Ruth it's weird. Uh, 
having, having this on, but it's just, that's how time is, isn't it? Five weeks has gone by, and five more weeks is going to disappear before we know it. That's how time is. And so we have to be careful because we, we all have ideas, don't we, on what we want our lives to look like? Well, if we just do nothing, if we don't think and evaluate and track and check, and that's what we did with our time. We gave you a, a paper to go home and track your time and how you spent it. If we don't evaluate, if we don't reevaluate, if we don't think, if we don't rethink, if we don't prioritize, reprioritize, time will disappear and nothing in our lives will change. And I don't know about you, but I, I want my life to continue to grow. I want my life to move forward. And so that brings us to our, our closing week and, and what we're going to talk about today. And this is a subject that I feel like, and there's a whole bunch of scripture uh, in the word about it, but I feel like it's something that needs talked about probably at least once a month. It's something that we need to be reminded of. And so we're going to do that today. Before we do that, I have a video that I want to share that kind of introduces uh, this subject uh, to us. And so we're going to watch that real quick. So uh, they're going to have that on the screens real quick. This is a TED Talk. I love TED Talks. In fact, there are people uh, in the congregation that I exchange TED Talks with. They send me a good one. I'll send them one back. And, and it's just fun because they're, they're 5 to you know, 15, 20 minutes long. Of, of information that we can kind of chew on uh, and see what we think about it. But this is one that I, I saw a few years ago and think it's just super powerful and it still means something really, really important today. So go ahead, Ezra, and play that for us. When I was 27 years old, I left a very demanding job in management consulting for a job that was even more demanding, teaching. I went to teach seventh graders math in the New York City public schools. And like any teacher, I made quizzes and tests, I gave out homework assignments. When the work came back, I calculated grades. What struck me was that IQ was not the only difference between my best and my worst students. Some of my strongest performers did not have stratospheric IQ scores. Some of my smartest kids weren't doing so well. And that got me thinking. The kinds of things you need to learn in seventh grade math, sure, they're hard. Ratios, decimals, the area of a parallelogram. But these concepts are not impossible. And I was firmly convinced that every one of my students could learn the material if they worked hard and long enough. After several more years of teaching, I came to the conclusion that what we need in education is a much better understanding of students and learning from a motivational perspective, from a psychological perspective. In education, the one thing we know how to measure best is IQ. But what if doing well in school and in life depends on much more than your ability to learn quickly and easily. So I left the classroom, and I went to graduate school to become a psychologist. I started studying kids and adults in all kinds of super challenging settings. And in every study, my question was, who is successful here and why? My research team and I went to West Point Military Academy. We tried to predict which cadets would stay in military training and which would drop out. We went to the National Spelling Bee and tried to predict which children would advance farthest in competition. 
We studied rookie teachers working in really tough neighborhoods, asking which teachers are still going to be here in teaching by the end of the school year. And of those, who will be the most effective at improving learning outcomes for their students? We partnered with private companies asking, which of these salespeople is going to keep their jobs? And who's going to earn the most money? In all those very different contexts, one characteristic emerged as a significant predictor of success. And it wasn't social intelligence, it wasn't good looks, physical health, and it wasn't IQ. It was grit. Grit is passion and perseverance for very long-term goals. Grit is having stamina. Grit is sticking with your future, day in, day out, not just for the week, not just for the month, but for years, and working really hard to make that future a reality. Grit is living life like it's a marathon, not a sprint. A few years ago, I started studying grit in the Chicago public schools. I asked thousands of high school juniors to take grit questionnaires and then waited around more than a year to see who would graduate. Turns out that grittier kids were significantly more likely to graduate, even when I matched them on every characteristic I could measure. Things like family income, standardized achievement test scores, even how safe kids felt when they were at school. So it's not just at West Point or the National Spelling Bee that grit matters, it's also in school especially for kids at risk for dropping out. To me, the most shocking thing about grit is how little we know, how little science knows about building it. Every day, parents and teachers ask me, how do I build grit in kids? What do I do to teach kids a solid work ethic? How do I keep them motivated for the long run? The honest answer is, I don't know. <laughs> what I do know is that talent doesn't make you gritty. Our data show very clearly that there are many talented individuals who simply do not follow through on their commitments. In fact, in our data, grit is usually unrelated or even inversely related to measures of talent. So far, the best idea I've heard about building grit in kids is something called growth mindset. This is an idea developed at Stanford University by Carol Dweck, and it is the belief that the ability to learn is not fixed, that it can change with your effort. Dr. Dweck has shown that when kids read and learn about the brain and how it changes and grows in response to challenge, they're much more likely to persevere when they fail because they don't believe that failure is a permanent condition. So growth mindset is a great idea for building grit, but we need more. And that's where I'm going to end my remarks, because that's where we are. That's the work that stands before us. We need to take our best ideas, our strongest intuitions, and we need to test them. We need to measure whether we've been successful, and we have to be willing to fail, to be wrong, to start over again with lessons learned. In other words, we need to be gritty about getting our kids grittier. Thank you. I, I always think it's amazing when the scripture and science match up. I always do. And I love what she talked about there with perseverance and the growth mindset. And when kids develop this, 
idea that failure is, is not the end, like they can continue on, that they can grow through it, and that thinking and rethinking is possible. That's what we've been talking about, and that's what she brings up. We also get to see it in the Scripture. It's a reality there in what they have studied and figured out, but it's also a reality in the Word. In James 1, starting in verse 2, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. How many people in here want to be mature, complete, not lacking anything? I cannot believe there are people that did not raise their hands right there. But we'll go with it. We'll go with it. We'll just pretend like you do want to be mature, complete, and not lacking anything. The whole idea of not lacking anything is just amazing. But what does it come from? It comes from trials and tribulations that lead to perseverance. And perseverance will finish its work. If you have your Bible, I, I, that, that part might be a good idea to underline right there. Finish its work. Because here's the problem that I see today and the thing that I specifically want to address when we're talking about year after year. When you start a construction project, you know that there's a deconstruction project usually before you start building up. And when walls and things start getting tore down, whether it's in relationships, whether it's in your finances, whether it's in specific buildings itself, whether it's in your spiritual walk with God, things get messy. Challenges show up. And that is the moment when so many of us throw in the towel. We're just done. We can't handle it anymore. We even make statements that say, I quit, I give up, I can't do it. It's too tough. And we give up before we have a chance to actually finish the work. And how many people in this room know, thank you God, that God is not done with you yet? And that if you're going to continue to walk with God, there are going to be challenges that show up. And when challenges show up, there's going to be deconstruction that happens in your life. And when there's deconstruction, there's messes. And if you quit in the middle of the messy part, you will never get to see God's finished work, his ultimate work done in your life when you persevere, and you'll never get to see the construction zone. I mean, it won't, it won't finish itself out. My wife and I, two weeks ago on Monday, out by our house, uh, Mark Beringer, who goes to church here, uh, measured, and we got four and a half inches in about two hours' time, two and a half hours' time. We got six and a half inches in about 12 uh, hours' time. And in that time, uh, Ruth and I's basement filled with water. We got water in our basement, which um, is a struggle for us because we have two bedrooms down there and a living room down there, but the bedrooms were important. Our girls, all three of them, um, had to use the living room upstairs, the main room, uh, as their bedroom for, you know, six, seven days. And so that was, that was pretty tough. But we get home. We get this call on Monday night. We're here uh, doing orientation. We get this call. Our daughter is like, uh, Dad, there's water in the basement, and so we're like, oh no, and so we run out of here, we run home, and, and, and yep, sure enough, there's water, we're outside working, trying to figure out what's going on, we find it, and we, we get things in water, in two hours, we got the water out of the basement, but how many people know water does its damage really fast, right? So we got some damage that we have to take care of, we get up Tuesday morning, thank God, we had that day off anyways, we were, it was the day before school started, and so we decided we were going to take that day off work, and we were going to spend it with our kids, and guess what, we got to spend it with our kids, the whole day with our kids, now it wasn't what they had in mind, but we were together, 
We were together the whole time. There was a little bit of whining and complaining, but we were together. But anyways, we get the water out, and the basement looks okay. But then on Tuesday, when we start tearing the carpet out, and we start cutting out the bottom part of the drywall, we start removing the insulation, and, and Wednesday we do this as well. And Wednesday afternoon, we just have a big pile of trash in the middle of our uh, living room downstairs and in the bedrooms and everything, and it is just it is just crap. It is just, it's terrible. It smells and everything's rough. And I had to go uh, have a couple of meetings. I text Ruth and I said, you know, hey, hon, how are you doing? And she goes, I just, I can't stop crying. She's like, my house smells like a swamp. And in that moment, as you guys know, in that moment when everything is tore apart, when everything is nasty, when everything is just piled up in your life, it, it's hard to see the end. It's tough. The, there, there is no light at the end of the tunnel in those moments. But it's amazing how so many people, you know, have pitched in and helped us, and we've gotten so much done, and, and, and the basement is coming along, the drywall is up, we were working on flooring and things like that, and it, and it's gonna, and it looks like it's going to be better than it was before. And you're just like, the way this works, it looks so awesome now. And we had just an encouraging day yesterday as we're, we're getting ready to paint, and things were looking good. But we were ready to quit two days after it started. And you guys know how those things work in your lives. Let me, let me give you a reality. When you decide that, you know what, my marriage is not where I want it to be, and that 168 hours this week is going to disappear, and I want to invest in the marriage, and as you invest in that relationship, and messes start to show up, you start to break down walls so that you can reconstruct walls. When messes start to show up, the opportunity to quit is there, and it is an easy choice. When you start doing the same with your finances and you start making adjustments because 168 hours is going to disappear in a week, but you know that I want to start saving, I want to start giving, and I want to start doing what is right, and I want to start being content, and you start breaking down those walls, there's going to be messes in the heart of your life. And you're going to be like, man, I don't know if I can do this. You might cry, and you might cry for no reason. You don't even know why you're upset. But when it's done... When, when, when perseverance has finished its work and you are mature and complete, lacking nothing, you'll look back and say, man, that time was easy. But most of us, and the challenge is this, most of us quit before perseverance finishes its work. And we have to understand, every one of us has to understand that God is not done with you yet, that he's not finished, that the work is still continuing on. In fact, the Bible tells us that he is the author and finisher of our faith. That means your story is still being written. And it's not done yet. And so we want to we challenge ourselves to not quit in the mess, but to persevere because that's where we will get to experience that victory. Don't give up during the messes. I want to challenge you, church, that as we dive in, as we continue on this year-after-year year idea, that it needs to be something that you persevere, that you push through. This is something I believe wholeheartedly. In fact, I really try hard to teach my kids and also like my wrestlers this. I have a conversation with the kids and I tell them, listen, you have this weekend and when you come back, I expect you to stick it out for the year. Most of you, I want to challenge that you will stick it out for the two years because I coach junior high wrestling. I did the same with my baseball team. I gave them the same challenge. And, and my baseball team started with 13 kids and finished with 13 kids. 
I was told that we were the only team to do that. The only team. We also didn't have any kids miss a single game. And I was told that we were the only team to do that. I challenged the kids right up front. And these were not kids even from perfect homes or anything like that, but I challenged them right up front. I said, listen, if you're going to be a part, you have to be a part. I don't care if you're the best player on the team or the worst player on the team. You are on this team, and I expect you to be a participant on this team. You can go home, talk to your parents, but if you come to the first practice, you will be part of AMVETS baseball, and I expect you to remain part of AMVETS baseball. I say that specifically to my wrestling team because I understand, like, there are going to be messy times. There are going to be times when a kid will say something to you on the baseball field, and you will want to quit. Do not quit. Do not. Because you want to reap what the team has to offer. And I think that about all of our lives as well. I challenge my wrestlers. I challenge my kids at home. I challenge myself. In church, I'm challenging you. When you're persevering or when you're doing this work, when you're thinking, rethinking, adjusting, readjusting, when you're tearing walls down in your life and there are messes in your finances, there's messes in your relationships, there's messes in your spiritual walk with God, that is not your cue to quit. That does not mean that God is not in it. And sometimes we lie to ourselves and say, wow, this is too hard, so God must not want me to do this. Maybe this is hard because God does want you to persevere because that's where his work will be finished, where you will be perfect and mature, not lacking anything. Maybe that's the challenge. Maybe you need to put your big boy pants on and get your button gear and go get her done. Maybe that's what God is asking you to do. And so I want to challenge you to that during this. Don't give up during the messes. When I was talking to my wife about this um, sermon, we were talking about all of the Old Testament stories. And I don't know if you guys love the Old Testament stories like I do, but almost every one of the characters had the exact same type of story happen. We could talk about David. David was anointed to be king. And when he, after he's anointed to be king, the current king decides he wants to kill him, and for years, years, he lives like a wild animal in caves for years. You talk about wanting to quit in the messes. Boy, most of us would be like, I can't do this anymore. I can't live in a cave. I can't scrounge for my food. This is awful. There's one point where he's like, I just want a drink of water. I just want water. But he perseveres, and he gets to be king. Because persevere will fi perseverance will finish its work in you if you will not quit. Same with Joseph. Joseph is given a dream where God gives him this dream that people are going to bow down to him and that he is going to be a, a person of significance and power. He spent over 10 years, almost 15 years, in prison. In prison. Some dream you gave me, God. This is a joke. I can't believe I'm here. What are you doing, Lord? I'm sick of this. This is bullcrap. I'm done. I give up on you. That would be the conversation I think most of us would have in those moments. But Joseph persevered, and perseverance will finish its work. And he became second in command over all of Egypt. A foreigner became second in command. You, you, you'd have to understand the culture to understand how big of a miracle that is. That a foreigner became second in command over Egypt because he did not quit when things got messy. And one of my favorite stories is Moses. And we're going to read a little bit about Moses. But in Exodus 3.9, the people pray 
for a deliverer. They asked God that he would send somebody because the Israelites are now slaves in Egypt. And there's like a million of them that are slaves to the Egyptian people. And they are being oppressed. And they cry out to God, God, send us a deliverer. And God hears their cry. That's what the word says. And he decides to send Moses. And so he meets with Moses in the form of a burning bush. And, he, and, and the bush tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and ask him to let God's people, the Israelites, go. And Moses argues with the bush, which doesn't make sense to me. Guys, I got news for you. Um, if God is talking to you in a bush, and he identifies himself as God in the bush, I probably wouldn't argue with the bush. I probably wouldn't. But there's a burning bush. Moses argues, says, I don't want to go. God says, go. He's like, I can't talk. He says, I will give you words. I made your mouth. You can do it. Finally, he says, please send somebody else. God gets angry and says, you know what? Because you're a crybaby, I'll send Aaron along with you so you won't be by yourself, so you'll have somebody else along those lines. So this bush informs him of what he's going to do and what God is going to do through him. So he has that vision, that promise in his heart, which I think is important because we have promises as well that need planted in our heart. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I won't sin against you. Those promises are important. So he has that promise that God gives him through a burning bush. Now Exodus 4, 29-31, I want to read this. When Moses and Aaron show up and tell the Israelite people, this is their response. Will you throw that up there for me? Uh, Ezra, please. It says here in 4, Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs that God had given them earlier in the chapters before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had sent and had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshiped. You see, church, this is, this is very, very much, I think, significant to us. When we hear the promise of God, when we hear what God is going to do in our hearts and lives, whether it's healing, you know, which so many of us are praying for, whether it's a miracle of some other kind, we're like, yes, Lord. And we get down on our hands, we get down on our knees, whatever posture it is, and we say, Lord, I'm here. Yes, Lord, move in me. And that's what the Israelites did. So after this, Moses is motivated, and he goes and stands before Pharaoh. And he tells Pharaoh what they're going to do, and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh, of course, says, no. I mean, I'm like wondering what he thought was going to happen right here, right? Because in this moment, so oftentimes we have these, these ideas of how God is going to work this, and they're not the same ideas that God has. So he goes up to Pharaoh, and, and Pharaoh says, I don't know this God that you're talking about, and I'm not letting my slaves go. Are you kidding me? Go away. Don't only go away, but since you're going to be arrogant and approach me about this, I'm going to double their work. I'm going to make them go and get their own straw. So they have to go get straw, and they have to make the same amount of bricks that they've always made. And if they don't do it, I'm going to beat them. That's what Pharaoh says. So then Moses, of course, gets out there and hears this, and so do the Israelite people who are told this. And what do you think their response is? A bunch of whining. Because that's what we do, isn't it? I mean, th these people are like us. And so they, they break down a little bit. 
And so here we have in Exodus 5, 19, it says this, The Israelites' overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. I mean, he's basically saying, I, I hope God just, just ruins your life right here. May God judge you because of what we have to suffer because you approached Pharaoh. I mean, just a few verses, they were rejoicing. Yes, the promise is here. But all of a sudden now, their work got doubled. Things got more difficult in the moment. <coughs> and they're ready to give up. Moses then goes, and he goes and approaches God. He says this, when Moses returned to the Lord, he said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me your name? He has brought trouble. Is this, uh, jumped a sentence. Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Lord, not only have you not done what you said you were going to do, but it looks worse. But if you read chapter 6, God goes on and says, and I'm just going to read the first verse, but he goes on and he talks to Moses about this. He said, then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand. He will let them go because of my mighty hand. He will drive them out of this country. You see, here, here's, here's the reality, right? God is like, wait a second, wait a second. What did you expect, that he would just be okay with this? No, no, now it's my turn. Pharaoh had his little joy. Now I get to put my weight on Pharaoh. And I'm going to get to the point where it's not like he just lets people go. He's actually going to drive you out. He's going to wish for you to leave. That's what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. And most of us know the stories. God sends these plagues on Pharaoh, which are just horrible, and on his country. And finally, he just says, be gone. Pharaoh does. Be gone. I am done with this. But how many of us give up when we face the very first challenge after the promise? That, yeah, let my people go. No, double your work. I quit. God is my enemy. He doesn't want me anymore. And God says, whoa, wait a second. I'm not finished yet. Pharaoh says that. Well, now I get my turn. You know, I get my turn. This is my chance. And I'm going to show Pharaoh how strong and how mighty my hand is to the point where he's going to say, please leave. And you're going to see it work in me. And it does. As you know, if you've read the story before, the Israelites are released a few years, uh, a few time later after the, the plagues. He says, go, and they're gone. And they get to go to a land that they were promised, a land flowing with milk and honey. And it's so amazing to me, once again, the opportunity is there where it gets harder before it gets better. And we want to quit and we struggle. But God says, no, 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 wait, wait. You can do this. You persevere. My mighty hand will show up and you will see, once again, my perfect work. So what do we need to do, church? One, we need to start seeing challenges 
as opportunities for growth. That's what we saw in that very first scripture. When we have these challenges, we have opportunities for growth. I love sports. Uh, I love to golf. Like I said, I coach other things. And most of the time, when we find a struggle, when we find something that's not working quite right, it can be an opportunity to make us better as a team. And if you never see it in practice, and it shows up during a game, that can be a struggle. But that's why we practice over and over and over again, because all of a sudden, oh my gosh, when a curveball is thrown, this kid pops it up every time. We have to work on that. We have to figure out what's going on here. See, those are opportunities for us to get better at what we do. It's the same in life. When we have these challenges that show up, we get opportunities for growth. So see them as opportunities for growth. Two, hold on to the promises. God's word is full of promises. Plant those promises deep in your heart. Remember those promises. Help to see them. When God gives us that vision, when God gives us that hope, keep it deep-seated in your life. Hebrews 10.23 says, you can throw that up there please for me, Ezra, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Hold on to it unswervingly to the hope we profess. Hold on to it, because he who promised is faithful. And because he who promised is faithful, we get to do the last thing, which we get to have confidence. I I want to have confidence in him. I don't want to walk around in every little uh, uh, tick, every little wave, everything that pushes against me, knocks me down. I want to continue on the path that God has for me because one, he has promised and he is faithful. Two, when I see challenges, I know it's opportunities for growth. Therefore, I can have confidence in who God is and that he will finish the work that he has started in me. And that is our last verse that we have here. Church, I want us to keep moving forward. I want us to not allow the enemy to distract or discourage us because we have opportunities here for growth. Consistent effort over time multiplied by God equals incredible growth, equals incredible success. Keep moving forward. Romans 5, 1 through 5. And this is just another verse that says the same thing here. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out on our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope does not disappoint, church, and we have an opportunity for that. But don't give up in the messy times. Continue to work and move forward and see what God does in your life. Father, we praise you. We thank you for the opportunities we have to grow and to move forward. Lead us, Lord, in everything you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Who is Lord of your life? I'm not 100% sure if he said this during the service, but a scripture that he referenced to in first service was, was that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith, the author and the finisher, meaning he, start, he is writing our salvation story. But I want to ask you this question this morning, is who has been writing your story? 
Have you been writing your story? Because maybe if you've been writing your story and you've wrote it and you go, why do I keep having these problems? Why do I keep having these issues in my life? Why do I feel like I continue to fail? Maybe, and I'm not saying that you're like, this doesn't mean you're a whole person, but maybe you're failing because you've been writing your story all along and you've wrote the story and some of the, and your story in, in, includes some sins and some troubles and some things that you've done, some bad decisions that you made. Maybe it's time now though to let God be the author. To say, God, you know what? Go ahead. I'm surrendering everything over to you. Go ahead, write my story for me. I haven't done a great job so far, God, but I'm going to put my hope, my trust in you. Proverbs tells us in 3, 5, it says, to trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your path straight. You want somebody to write your story for your life, let it be God. God is good. God is faithful. God will lead you down straight paths. If you're going, man, I don't know, I don't get why I continue to fail. Maybe you've been trusting yourself to write your story instead of trusting God. I, I tell you, trust God. You, you may get in uncomfortable situations when you trust God, but God will be your strength. God will be your fortress. God will be there for you. Even though you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil because God is with you. So I encourage you today and maybe challenge you to think, who has wrote my story so far? Uh, it's something that ministered to me as I was sitting through service, and I wanted to challenge you with that today. Let's bow our heads, church. If you're in the room and you say, I have so far wrote my own story, I've done a bad job of giving the keys over to God or handing, surrendering my life over to him, and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, and you say, today I do, though. I wanna, today I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want to give my life to him. What I'd like to do right now, with boldness in your heart, lift your hand so I can see it. Anybody in the room who says, I want to give my life to Jesus for the first time. I see you. Anybody else? You guys can put your hands down. Now, Maybe you're in this room, you say, at one point in my life, I handed the keys over, but I've done a bad job, and I took them back over. And I have put myself in bad situations, and I need to rededicate my life to Jesus. I need to re-surrender my life to Jesus. If that's you, would you lift your hand up? I want to pray for you as well. See a couple of hands there. Anybody else? You guys can put your hands down. Church, will you say this prayer after me? Repeat this prayer after me. Those people who raise your hand, I want you to mean this within, with everything inside you. This is just an opportunity for me to um, lead you in a prayer of forgiveness. And so we want to we give you this opportunity. This is just the starting point of your faith walk with Christ. Church, let's say this prayer together. Say, Father, I thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins. I believe in my heart and I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. From this day forward, I will follow you. Help me to follow you during the hard times. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's celebrate for those few people there. Come on. Hey, is anybody else excited? Anybody else excited? Two people. You're still like, what's going on? What's he going to do? Come on. Like, there's a celebration in heaven 
right now for those people. I'm excited for you people who raised your hands today. So excited for you. Church, will you all, will everybody stand with me? I almost said y'all. I, I don't know where that came from. I'm not Southern at all. <laughs> Prayer team, would you come forward? If you raised your hand during that time, if you rose your hand and you rededicated your life, you gave your life to Jesus, we'd love for you to come forward for prayer. Um, life is hard to do alone, and these people want to pray for you and be here with you um, through this time. So I encourage you to come forward for prayer. Um, let me pray for you before you go to church. God, we thank you. We thank you so much for loving us. For knowing stuff like what Romans 5 says, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us, God. We thank you for that. Lord, I pray that as we go today, that we remember that our constant behaviors over time will equal growth, God, even through the storms and even through the trials and the easy times, the good times, God, that through it all, when we keep our focus on you, God, there is a hope that is forever last, that we can that we can cling to that is in you. God, I pray that you would help us to be go to go this week and to be a light in the darkness, to shine a light that is bright. And Lord, I pray that people come to know us, that come to know you through us, God. We praise you and we thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys for coming. You guys have a great Sunday. We will see you next week.